So we have this incredible text in front of us. We have this letter that Paul wrote. It's his second letter to the church in Corinth. It's thousands of years old, and yet it speaks directly into our time, in our place, in our world. Even though it was written on the other side of the globe many, many years ago, here we have it in our hands, and as we study it, we see what our calling as it is as a church. Now, I'm encouraged by this, because the church in Corinth, they really got off track. The church in Corinth, they're a a church that has lost focus, they've lost direction, they're distracted, they're divided, and yet the Lord wasn't done with them. Through the direction of the Spirit of God, Paul pens this letter to them and says, as your spiritual father, let's get back on track. You've lost your way but let me me guide you back into your purpose and God's plan for you as a church. And again, that's one thing that's been on my mind as we've been studying this letter is what is the mission of the church? When we look out into the, uh, uh, the American church today, I think we would all agree that the church is distracted. We're fragmented. We've kind of lost our way a little bit. And so we have to ask that question, what is the purpose of the church? Well, one, we know we are the body of Christ, right? That we are the hands and feet and mouth of Jesus, and he is the head. So the next question is, what is Jesus' mission here today? And what was his mission when he was here on earth? Remember, we asked the question, why did Jesus die for us? And many would say, well, because he loved us. And that's true, but that's not the primary reason he came and died. He tells us in the Gospels, Father, glorify your name. That was his prayer. God, glorify your name. And God's response, I have and I will. When Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, and Pontius thought he had all the the power, and he was questioning Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you say rightly, I, I am a king, but my kingdom is not this kingdom, because if this were my kingdom, I would have angel armies here fighting for me, but this is not my kingdom. And Pontius Pilate said, oh, so you're, you're a king. And Jesus said, for, for this reason I've come, to bear witness to the truth. Well, what truth? The nature of God. Jesus came and died and rose again to glorify God, to make God known to the world. And through his death and through his resurrection, he points to God and says, yes, this is what he's like. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the express image of the Father, that he's the radiance of God's glory. So again, if we wanna know what God is like, let's look at the person of Jesus Christ but then we carry that over to the body of Christ and we hear what our high calling is. It's to make God known in this world. And the church in Corinth, they had lost sight of this and they had lost sight of it because they had lost their place at Jesus's feet. 
They weren't finding themselves with Jesus. Maybe they were doing things for Jesus or they wanted things from Jesus. They were living their spiritual lives through other men. That's why they were so divided. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Peter. I'm of Paul. And Paul says, did I die for you? Am I the one that gave my life for your salvation? No, you are of Jesus Christ. You have all things in him. It's not about any one man, but the God-man, Jesus Christ. And I think, I wholeheartedly believe that we see so much division in the church today because we are more concerned about what people have to say about Jesus than we are hearing from Jesus. People fill up their libraries with more books and more podcasts and more uh, sermons and more YouTube videos, and it's easy to do that. And I'm not saying preaching and teaching is wrong. I, I, I better not think that. But when we've replaced what other people have to say about Jesus with spending time with Jesus, we become followers of men and women and not followers of Jesus. My role as a pastor is to point you to Jesus. Not to create a dependence on me and my spiritual walk, but point you to a place that I need to be And that's at the feet of Jesus. That's why we were created. His name is Emmanuel. And that means what? God with us. So that's Paul's exhortation. Hey, return to the feet of Jesus. Dwell with him. Abide in him. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. But we forget the second part of that. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And that nothing doesn't mean we don't do things, but nothing of eternal significance. Oh, we'll do a lot of things. We'll bicker, we'll fight, we'll divide, we'll puff out our chests and act like we're more than we are but we won't accomplish anything of spiritual significance. So that's really been chapters one through six. Pastor John started chapter seven last week, and Paul's now answering some questions that he has received from the church in Corinth. They wanna know what it looks like to model Christ. They wanna know what lifestyles and what things that they're involved in should they abstain from or should they embrace? What is the lifestyle of a born-again believer, someone who's following Jesus? And one of their questions, as we saw last week, was concerning marriage. There was a thought process in Corinth. Remember, they loved knowledge, Knowledge was their currency. Knowledge is how they determined someone's value and the worth. The more knowledge you had, the more important you were. And there was one vein of thinking where they said marriage was a lower form of intelligence, really. Celibacy, now that's where it was at. That meant you had... Uh, moved away from worldly things and moved into this, this, this uh, uh, place where you didn't need anyone. And that had entered into the church a little bit too. And they had asked Paul, well, should we get married or shouldn't we? And what was his response? If you can stay single your whole life, it really opens the door to being 
really used by God in a unique way. Because when you have a a wife or a husband in a family, your time is divided, which is understandable. But then he adds to that, that's a very unique calling. And if you look at the sexual immorality within uh, uh, Corinth, not many of you are created for that. But let's look at what true marriage looks like. It's a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman, and that's what glorifies God. So if you're not called to celibacy, and he says, trust me, you'll know if you are. If you're not, and you long to be with someone, commit to that person forever. It's a lifelong covenant. And now he moves into something a little bit different. He again begins in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning things offered to idols. And I know all of you woke up this morning thinking about, hmm, what about those things offered to idols? Now marriage, we, we understand. The application is right in front of us. But now concerning things offered to idols, this is going to take a little bit of digging. Now let me remind you of the spiritual condition of the Corinthians. They had thousands of gods, thousands upon thousands of gods. There were temples all over the city, and it was believed that in these temples there was a connection between the realm of the gods and the realm of men. So these temples were spiritual places and they would sacrifice to these gods to either pacify their anger or to try to get something from them to earn their favor. So there was a lot of sacrificing taking place. And when you took your sacrifice to the temple and you offered it to the god, you would take a third of it and it would be offered to the God, a third of it would be enjoyed in the temple in these big dining rooms where they'd have temple feasts. You would invite your family and your friends, let them know, hey, I'm going to be sacrificing to this God. Um, I want you to join us for a celebration. And it was believed that the God of that temple would join you in that feast. So a third to the God, a third of the meat enjoyed in the dinner party, and then a third of it was to be sold back, was usually sold back in the marketplace, and it was sold at a discount. So a lot of the meat that you found during this time was meat that was offered to an idol. It was used in idol worship. And guys, meat wasn't cheap back then, and now we're starting to relate, right? Um, It wasn't cheap. So there was definitely uh, an appeal to meat that was sold at a discount. So the question that they posed to Paul is, but what, what should we do with this? Is it okay to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols or should we avoid it completely? And this is Paul's response. And what he's going to say is you're really asking the wrong question. We're gonna see here that this has very little to do with meat and more to do with love. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Paul writes, now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Now, many commentators believe Paul is actually quoting uh, a proverb that was pretty well known during this time. Remember what I said, knowledge was the currency of the day. 
everyone was looking for that next new idea, that next new thought, that next new philosophy. And Paul says, okay, I understand the the worldview. We all have knowledge. And then he drops this bomb. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. You have elevated knowledge as if this is the primary goal in life, but you've missed the mark. Knowledge in, in this form it inflates. That's that, what that word puff, that term puffs up mean, means in the Greek. It means to inflate. Have you guys bought a bag of chips lately? You open it up, it's a big bag. It says family size. And that means if you have a family of six, each person gets one. And you open it up and it's all hot air. That's the idea. And this is so true And we see it in the church today, and we need to be really careful, especially because we are in a Bible teaching community. We can think that our spiritual life is built primarily on consuming knowledge. And the more knowledge we get, the closer we are to God. And the more knowledge we share with others, the more effective we are. And I got to balance this here. Trust me, we'll, we'll get to that. But that's not the primary goal. That's not the motivation. Paul says knowledge on its own, it puffs up. We become prideful. And we can look at someone that has a lot of knowledge and say, man, they must be really close to God. But I'll tell you what, I, I wish that you guys could join me sometimes, and Pastor John will attend, attest to this. We'll have people come off the street who are addicted to fentanyl or heroin or whatever it may be, and they can run laps around us when it comes to scripture memorization. They know God's word. But it hasn't led to freedom Knowledge on its own, for the sake of knowledge, it puffs up. But here was, here's what Paul says. Guys, it's about love. And not this worldly definition of love. I love you because, what you because of what you offer me. The biblical definition of love. Jesus says, love others as I have loved you. It's a love that has no strings attached. It's a supernatural kind of love where it has nothing to do with the object of the love but the one who's offering the love. It's a love that exists when there's nothing coming back. That's a difficult kind of love and we need to treat it that way. We approach God's love. I do this. I hear, okay, love others as Christ has loved you. Okay, I get it. Wait, no, no. We should be discouraged by that, right? I'm supposed to love in a way where people can persecute me, they can speak ill of me, and I'm supposed to turn around and bless them? Guys, if we think that's easy, we don't understand. This is the type of love that only comes through the power of God's spirit doing it through us. It's not something that exists in and of ourselves. But Paul says that's our pursuit. It's a love that builds one another up. 
It's not a knowledge that appears one way, but when you get behind the veil, there's not a whole lot going on. No, it's a foundational kind of love that builds something that is lasting and eternal. Love edifies, Paul says. That's our pursuit. You're asking this question because you want to know who's right. You want me to respond to you and say, no, it's wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols. So this camp can say, I told you so. I told you we were right. And then the other side, no, we want you to say, oh, that it's totally fine. Idols are worthless and meaningless, so it's okay to, but it's not about who's right. It's about caring about one another, and we'll see that more here in a second. Look at verse two. Paul says, if anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. One thing I've learned when we're in a pure pursuit of Jesus and he reveals the nature of God to us, we begin to realize how little we know. There's a humility that takes place when we're in the presence of Christ. Not an arrogance, not a, oh, I've got this all figured out. The more we know Jesus, the more we realize we don't know much. And that's what Paul is saying. If anyone thinks they have arrived, if anyone thinks they're a spiritual giant, he knows nothing as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, here's the focus, here's how Paul's framing this. If anyone knows or anyone loves God, this one is known by him. It's not about knowing God, it's about God knowing us. So, Paul frames it around love and not knowledge, and then he addresses the question in verse four. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. What is an idol? It's something made with human hands. So Paul says, it's, we know it's nothing. We know in and of itself it has no power and that there is no other God but one. There is one true God, Yahweh. But look at what he says in verse five. He almost contradicts himself, it seems. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, and then he says, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we live for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. So, in one breath, Paul says idols are nothing and they're worthless. They're, and we've seen it throughout scripture, they're just trinkets made with human hands. And it's senseless to worship something that you created out of wood, half of it went in the fire to burn and the other half you're sacrificing to it. Doesn't make any sense. But then in the same breath, Paul says, well, there are many gods and lords. So what's Paul saying? Let's bring it into modern terms. Drugs and alcohol. Is there any life in that? A life of addiction? 
I, I, I bring that up because I, I relate. I worshiped at that throne where my feelings were my God. And so I would engage in, and that's worship. My mind and my body were devoted to that God. Now, drugs and alcohol in and of themselves, sitting on a counter, they're an inanimate object. They have no power in and of themselves, but there is a power behind drugs and alcohol, right? There are small gods. There's principalities and powers. And, and I know we talk about spiritual things and some of you are like, ah, that feels a little uncomfortable. Guys, there's good and evil. There's one true God and there is Satan and he is very real. And if you can't see him at work today, your head might be in the sand. So these idols are nothing, they're worthless, but there is a power behind these idols that are causing, and and again, it's not about the devil made me do it, but they are drawing people's attention away from the one true God and onto these worthless trinkets. Because ultimately, these men and women in Corinth, they're not worshiping trinkets, they're worshiping themselves because they created gods that they could control. I mean, the temple of the goddess Diana had prostitutes. And it was an act of worship to engage with these prostitutes. That sounds like a religion created by man. And there's a power behind it. There are small gods behind that type of temple worship. And that's all Paul is saying. So on one hand, yes, it is. These are worthless idols. These sacrifices that are taking place, they're sacrificing meat to, to, to worthlessness. But let's not for a moment think that there's not a power behind it. So there's a reason Paul's engaging with them in this way, because he wants them to think this through. He says, there's one God, the Father, of whom are all things. And we are for him. We live for him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. We've been brought back from the dead because of Jesus' death and resurrection. We're alive because of him. So here's the focus, right? He's, Paul's taking uh, worthless idols and comparing them to the one true God who gave us Jesus as a gift so that we may live. Look at verse seven. He says, we know there's one God. There's one Jesus Christ in whom we live. And we know that idols in and of themselves are nothing But however, he says, not everyone has that knowledge. Not everyone has that understanding. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol. So really what he's saying is people believe these idols are something. They have value, they have meaning, they have power. We can appease gods, we can make them angry. So the knowledge that you have that there is one true God and idols are worthless, not everybody has those God, those, those, uh, that understanding. 
So when they eat the meat, they're eating it as an act of worship and their conscience being weak, it's defiled because the act that they're involved in is sinful. So here's the debate within the church. Should we eat of this meat knowing that idols are nothing or should we abstain from it knowing that the the very activity going on around this meat is just broken? That's a fair question, isn't it? By us eating it, do we prove, hey, this is, this is worthless, this is nothing? Or are we joining in and condoning that kind of behavior? And so Paul takes it back a step and says, well, the question isn't whether not we should the question is what is loving that's the heart of the passage what's the motivation behind this and really this can be applied to so many things we involve ourselves in even like why why do we study god's word why do we le- listen to preaching and teaching and podcasts why do we buy books why do we go to conferences why do we come here on a sunday morning motivation matters and paul is really asking why do you want this understanding do you want it to prove that you are right or do you want to know because you want to do what is loving because you want to build one another up. And I love that he takes the question and finds the question behind the question. Isn't that what Jesus did? Someone would pose a question and Jesus wouldn't, wouldn't even answer that. He would go deeper and say, no, this is, this is the issue. This is what's going on in your heart. And here's the thing with knowledge. If you're more concerned about revealing to others what you know then you are building them up. And I've used this analogy before, and I know I heard it someplace else because it's kind of good. A lot of times we're more like gun collectors than we are soldiers. We have an arsenal at our disposal, but all we do is clean it every day, and then we bring our friends over and say, look at all that I have. These are pretty neat, aren't they? But we're never in battle. Now, a soldier, he cleans his weapon because he knows he's going to have to depend on it. So Paul says, guys, let's, let's ask the right question. If you really want to know because you're pursuing a life that reflects Jesus, you're on the right track. If this is about a love for Jesus, you are on the right track. But if it's anything else, there's some heart issues that need to be dealt with. And guys, I need to say this. We often get a love for Jesus conflated with loving what we get from Jesus. And that's something that we need to echo throughout this letter because that's what Paul is bringing us back to. We often get a love for Jesus confused with loving what we get from Jesus. Or sometimes we get it confused with loving doing things for Jesus. Does that make sense? That's even more scary to me as a pastor because some of you are really good at doing things for Jesus and I can look at that and think, man, they're, they're, they're doing really well. 
Spiritually, they're doing awesome because they are so faithful, but behind that might not be any personal devotion. Does that make sense? You might just be a type A personality and you're a go-getter and you're doing this and you're doing that, but behind it, there is no personal fellowship going on. And so from the outside, what looks amazing and healthy and right and is bearing fruit is actually going to lead to burnout because there is no, it's not coming from time spent with Jesus. So let's never confuse a love for Jesus. You know, a love for Jesus drives us to his feet. We want to be with him more. So let's never confuse doing things for Jesus and getting things from him as a love for him. And I bring that up because as Paul talks about knowledge and our pursuit of knowledge, if Jesus is the center of it, if that's what we're after, if that's what we want to know, if that's who we want to know, it's going to be a wonderful thing. But if we're seeking knowledge for some other reason, we are going to find ourselves in trouble because it's going to lead to pride and arrogance. Paul says, if anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. Do you know what knowing nothing looks like? This is, this is really important for me to hear. Because sometimes we think a life of sin is just know, doing what we know is wrong, right? Sin is doing what we know to be wrong. But we also have blind spots, how many of you think Paul, or Peter was lying when he said to Jesus, I will never deny you? How many of you think Peter was being dishonest? In the back of his mind, he was thinking, man, as soon as things get bad, I'm bailing. Or how many of you think he was convinced of that? That yes, I will never abandon you. I will never deny you. He wasn't even aware, I think, of his own Weakness. But God was faithful to show him, you think you know something, you really don't. Or James and John, when they, they, they thought they were on the right track, when the Samaritan village kicked Jesus out, and they said, hey, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? I think they thought that that was the manner of man God was. And Jesus said, you have no idea the spirit or the manner of spirit you guys are acting in. I did not come to destroy mankind. I came to save them. So sometimes I bring that up. We don't even know what we don't know. And that's why that time at Jesus's feet is so important because he'll bring us not always into a a place where we um, in the moment know what our blind spots are, but he'll bring us into situations And those are painful situations sometimes. Trials, things that break our dependence and self down and we have to turn to him. And we may say, Lord, I will never deny you. And he'd say, yeah, if the heat's turned up enough, you will. But that's okay because when you return to me, strengthen your brethren. So the people in Corinth, they were asking the wrong questions. And don't we do that sometimes too? Not that the questions don't need to be asked, but the heart behind it's wrong. 
What are some of the questions we've been asking since the beginning of, of the church? Smoking cigarettes, is it wrong? Smoking cigars, drinking a beer with dinner, drinking a beer with breakfast, drinking coffee, wearing makeup, wearing jewelry, having long hair, short hair, no hair, drums in worship, dancing in worship, playing cards, celebrating Halloween, celebrating Christmas, celebrating your birthday. The list goes on and on, and I'm not saying they're not important questions. Some of us, some of those can get us really off track, but the question is, are we not free in Christ? And are we not free, and, and, and understand what I'm saying here, aren't we free to do all of these things? We're free from the bondage of the law, where the spirit of the Lord is there is what? Liberty. And for freedom, Christ has set us free. Our lives are governed by the perfect law of liberty, but Paul balances that in, in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. Be careful. And now we start to learn that this is about living for one another and not about living for ourselves. It's not about being right. It's about what is beneficial to those around us because some are weak. So let's ask this question. Who are the weak ones among us? Paul addressed this in his letter to Romans. When we think of weak, we think of those who are maybe new to the faith. They're spiritually weak. But Paul, in the book of Romans, says those who are weak are the ones that are bound by legalism still. They are still bound by the law. Some are immature because they don't understand the grace of God. This is what John Corson writes. He says, it takes time for those who are new in the faith to grow in the understanding that the way of the kingdom is totally different than the world's system. Because of the cross, the Christian race starts at the finish line. We don't fight for victory, we fight from victory. This is so foreign to the world's thinking that many new Christians are hypersensitive about issues of conscience and the possibility of failing. And I would replace that with not just new Christians, I think Christians in general, they don't understand the freedom for which Christ has set us free. But that freedom has to be tempered with a genuine concern and love for one another because we don't want to stumble one another. So there's the immaturity of legalism, and then there's also the immaturity that we see in the church in Corinth. And I I call it man child syndrome. We know what a man child is, right? Someone who's just not growing up. They're just not learning to take responsibility. They're not learning to provide and protect and do the things that God has called. And a guy, it can be a man or a woman. We all know what it looks like. But spiritually, we see that also. Christians who refuse to grow because it's too hard. 
They refuse to do anything that might be a little difficult or uncomfortable. There's all kinds of opportunity, and I've seen this firsthand. Someone who has come to me and said, Pastor, I want to grow spiritually. I want to know what Jesus' plan is for me. I want to mature. And then there's all these opportunities. We come on a Sunday, come early, leave late, get to know people, come on a Wednesday night. Uh, there's men's and women's Bible studies. There's small groups. There's men and women here that are willing to mentor you. Seek it out. It's available to you. Well, I'm too busy. I'm on a softball team. Well, then which one is important to you? Not that it has to be one or another, but at some point we need to grow up and make the important things important and let the other stuff kind of find their own place. Do we want to grow? So again, the the, the weakness, it can be those who are too legalistic or those who are allowing too many vices into their lives, and we need to think as mature believers, will my actions stumble one? And here's my point in all of this. An action that may stumble a legalistic brother might be different than an action that will stumble someone who has too much excess in their life. So I believe Paul is injecting discernment into this conversation. We love formulas, don't we? Just tell me what I need to do. Give me A plus B equals C and I'll do it, but that doesn't require a relationship with Jesus. Jesus is not a formula. People are at different places in their life. I believe because of our demographic, because of where we're located, we need to be very careful of how we allow alcohol into our lives. Not because it's, does it say that it's a sin to have a drink in the Bible? No, we're not gonna add to God's word that which is not there. But we know that there's a lot of people in our neighborhoods and in our fellowship that struggle with addiction. So do we need to address it a little bit differently than maybe a a church that is in a different demographic? Probably. And I think that's where Paul's getting us to, a place where we're asking the right question and we realize that people are in different places in their walk. Now again, it does come down to your personal relationship with the Lord as well. But regardless of the reason for someone's immaturity, do we care enough about them to make decisions around our lifestyle to build them up? Okay, look at, I'm gonna get real quick as we close just to some real practical questions that we can ask ourselves when we look at, okay, should this be a part of my daily life? Paul says, food does not commend us to God. Whether we eat or we don't eat, on the surface, Paul says, it doesn't commend us to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat, we are the worst. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you, who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple. So now you're engaging in that temple feast where the Corinthians thought that the God was appearing there during the feast. If someone sees you in that temple taking part in that worship, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? 
And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and you wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, look at Paul's heart. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again, lest I make my brother stumble. Boy, that just runs into the face of how many Christians view their liberty. Oftentimes, we wave our liberty like a flag. And Paul says, if it, if it harms my brother, I'll never touch it again. Because I'm not living for myself. I'm living for others. So again, Paul, would you describe Paul as a knowledgeable man? But for him, that knowledge took a back seat to being a loving example of godliness. His freedoms had to be run through the filter of love and we have to do the same if that's our heart. Guys, if we don't wanna build one another up, then do whatever you want. But if you're sitting here today saying, I wanna be a blessing to the body of Christ, then let me give you, and, and rarely do I do this because, again, I don't think walking with Jesus is a formula and I don't want to be like, hey, here are 10 life hacks to have a more spiritual life. But I think there are things that we can kind of think through when we determine what we allow into our lives that are either beneficial or we can just put them to the side because they're not helping us follow Jesus. So let me give you a few things. I don't remember where I got these from. They're not from my own mind. Um, and you'll figure that out shortly. But number one, if you're determining whether or not, I'm talking about lifestyle habits here, right? And we're trying to determine, God, is this something you want in my life? The question is excess, number one, if you're a note taker. Do I need this thing in my life or will it bring me into bondage? That's excess. Hebrews 12.1, therefore we also, since we have we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness. Let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Does this thing bring me back into bondage? Is it something that I know in my past, because I've allowed it in my life, I began serving it and not Jesus. I began thinking about it way too much. And guys, it can be drugs. It can be the iPhone. We know that we are just addictive by nature. We want to worship something and our flesh will worship anything but Jesus if we'll allow it to. Does this get in the way? Does it tie me down? Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.15, for this is the will of God, but by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, but not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. So number one, excess. The next one is kind of the other side of the the coin. It's expedience, meaning, okay, this might not be sin at all, but does it help? 
Does it help get me down the road of what it means to be a follower of Jesus? 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Does this thing help me to be more like Jesus? Will it make me more effective? Or is it just something that exists? Number three, emulation. First John 2, 6, the apostle John writes, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Does this action or activity, does it emulate Jesus? Would Jesus be involved in this? Remember, the heart here is to model Christ to the world. This is about as practical as it gets. Would Jesus be involved in this? Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus liked to have dinner. He was eating. Sometimes we see Jesus as the stoic, um, joyless uh, individual, but he's the source of joy. So never discount how much a good meal with friends can do for the soul. How many times have you walked away from just a a dinner with friends and you're like, I needed that? Emulation, would Jesus be involved in this? Evangelism, number, who's following along, four? Four, good. If I do this, will it move people towards giving their life to Jesus or will it draw them away? Colossians 4, 5, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace. Oh man, we need to hear this, don't we? Seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Does this move people towards salvation or does it draw them away? Am I building bridges or am I burning them? Am I more concerned about my Twitter fight and proving that I'm right? Or am I more concerned about this person knowing that there's a God who desperately wants to see them saved? And the only way that's possible is through the love of Christ. Edification, that's number five. Will this build others up? Will it make my walk and the walks of those around me stronger? Again, all things are lawful, but not everything I do builds others up. The next one, exaltation. Does this bring glory to God? Does it lift up the name of Jesus? Does it tell his story? 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And finally, and this is the heart of the study, does this provide my brother or sister, sister a pattern of godliness? Again, it's not about following others per se, but Paul even said, follow me as I follow Jesus. Does this pattern of life help others to step into a rhythm of life that is centered around time with Christ? 
Do my actions show a better way? Do I model Jesus? And I'll end here. What do you think is more beneficial to a first-year teacher? It's the first year they've ever had a classroom. Some of you teachers will relate to this. They step into the classroom, and they're like, how do I do this? What do you think would be more beneficial? Someone coming in, watching them teach, and then criticizing everything they do wrong, or have someone model what teaching good teaching looks like. Teachers, what's more helpful? Is it more helpful to have your principal come in and sit in the back while you're teaching and then they bring you aside and say, you're doing this wrong, this wrong, this wrong, or bring in someone who's just been doing it for a long time and they do it well and you get to watch how they manage a classroom and you're like, that's it. I have so much to take away from that. I think we're really good at criticizing sometimes, but not as good as modeling, and I'm telling myself this. It's so much easier to play armchair quarterback sometimes, but what our brothers and sisters need is someone modeling it, and I'll tell you right now, I am so grateful to have a model like Pastor John in my life, a model like my dad, and like my mom, and like, uh, I call you guys the gray beards, but just the the experience of the men and women in our fellowship that have been walking with Jesus for a long time and I can look at their life and say, okay, that makes sense. They've been faithful and I've seen how they've loved their wives and I've seen how they've served their church family and and that's an example that's helpful to get me down the line of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And I think that's all Paul is saying here. Guys, let love be the priority. Sacrifice your own wants and your own needs and ask yourself the question, not, now, I don't think this needs a disclaimer, but some things are just wrong, right? Can we agree on that? Some things are just wrong, but other things are a matter of preference. But are they always helpful? Helpful.